Welcome to the Genetics Podcast. This episode is part of our Precision Pioneers mini-series, which is focused on people who are on the cutting edge of precision medicine. And I'm here today with Dr. Vanita Agarwala, who's a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where she leads investments for the firm's biofund, including therapeutics, diagnostics, and digital health, with a focus on companies that are using unique data sets to improve drug development and patient care delivery. Since we're talking to an investor today, I I just need to note that A16Z Investments may be discussing the conversation, but none of the following content should be taken as investment advice. Please see a16z.com slash disclosures for more important information. So Vanita, I've had the chance to interview quite a few people from biotech companies as part of this mini series, and I'm really excited to get your viewpoint uh, both from your investor perspective at A16Z, but also I know you have a lot of direct relevant experience from your time at Flatiron. Um, and also, I, I understand that you still see patients uh, through some of your work at Stanford, which is great. So I wonder if maybe you could start with a, a just quick two to three minute thumbnail history of your career leading up to now, and um, then we could take it from there. Sure. And thanks so much for having me um, on the podcast. Um, I think, you know, in many ways, our industry is... Um, is turning over, uh, sort of entering a new chapter, and and so I feel like I'm just just getting started and and, and learning along with a group of really great innovative companies in this space. Um, in short, I you know I grew up the daughter of uh, of a physician and someone who was running research computing for a university, and so I very much kind of grew up in a household thinking about where computation could be applied to research and having sort of a natural inclination to think about how it how it could be applied to help improve patient care. And at some point, you know, in the late 90s, my my dad, who ran um, research computing at Penn State and was constantly orchestrating, you know, access to data storage, data compute resources for different investigators all over the university at some point said, hey, you know, it used to be the meteorologists and the physicists, um, you know, kind of using the most uh, computation. And there might be something going on in biology now, because it seems like those labs are really, you know, raising a lot of funds and accessing a lot of that technology to make discoveries in genomics and think about large scale, um, you know, biological data. And so that kind of, you know, I think turned me on um, to, to that uh, possibility and the, the, the prospect of, you know, not just academic research, but also companies and translatable science coming out of that ecosystem. And so I kind of have spent the last, um, the last 20 years on a journey to, to think through some of those applications and, and, um, and learn about those bases, really. So I did computational biology research in different areas, um, throughout my undergrad education at Stanford, as well as, um, throughout my, my PhD and MD PhD training at the Broad Institute and in the Harvard MIT ecosystem and just have learned a lot along the way and and now have have the really unique opportunity to to watch companies um, being formed exactly at that intersection as well and and have the real privilege of supporting a number of companies at that space. Amazing. Well, thank you. And and I noticed just in kind of reviewing your biography that you really started your MD PhD at the Broad Institute in kind of the, the perfect time when you look at those graphs of the cost of genome sequencing, I think it's 2007 or 2008 that it, that it departs from Moore's law and, and goes kind of supernova in terms of yeah. how low the cost yeah. has gone. So I, I feel yeah. like you couldn't have, and it, it seems like um, your, your parent who is in the IT and um, data infrastructure side of things probably had a, a role to play in that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really a lucky time. The more, when I look back on it, it, it was a fascinating 
uh, time to be entering the genomics industry. And honestly, my own instincts around where computation was going to play a role in biology before had been a little different. I'd been kind of looking at, um, you know, gene expression profiling, which was, you know, in the prior 10 years had, had dominated bioinformatics and computational biology. I'd been looking at, um, you know, even kind of more hardware-like applications and worked on a semiconductor-based, you know, PET scan device right. and thought about image reconstruction. And there's so many places where computation can be used in biology broadly. But just at that time, I met my PhD advisor, David Altschuler, and he said, like, look, this is going to blow up. Like, you know, if, if you want to, to really work on something that's going to be tied to human disease and, hum and, you know, and understanding the biology of human disease, I really think you ought to think about human genetics. And he was so right. It was exactly at that time, you know, 2007, the Wellcome Trust published um, a number of the very first large-scale genome-wide association studies, you know, not on hundreds of patients, but for the first time on sort of thousands of patients, a genome-wide scan of, of common variation and, and actually tying that to um, annotated disease phenotype was so novel at that time. And then every single year, exactly as you said, it was like, okay, now we can start doing targeted sequencing of a few of our favorite regions across the genome. Okay, now we can start doing, you know, uh, exome sequencing now we can start doing it at extraordinary coverage. Oh, by the way, now we learned a bunch of, you know, where the sites of rare variation are so we can make a chip that includes, you know, those sites of variation and the Omni chip and the exome chip and all these, you know, um, kind of cost competitive solutions to be able to profile really huge sample sizes came out. And then, of course, you know, low pass whole genome sequencing and ultimately even high, high coverage whole genome sequencing all became really possible within the course of that short time period of about seven to eight years. Um, and, and I really had a front row seat to, um, to watch that play out. So it really, it really was a special time. You're right. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, when I was thinking about how to, how to frame this discussion or structure it, um, I thought we could kind of look at the, the first 10 years of your, you know, it's a little more than 10 years, maybe 12 or 13, but from when you started your MD PhD to now, um, and then, you know, obviously the next 10, 10 to 12 years going forward. And it sounds like, uh, you know, what you just said was something that progressed probably extremely quickly in, you know, if you were sitting there in 2007 and said, how many people at a time would we be sequencing in, in 2020, would the UK have plans to sequence 5 million people, you know, for example, may, maybe you would have predicted, I'm not, I'm curious, generally uh, speaking, what were some of the things that you think in retrospect move way more quickly than everyone was thinking. And, and then also on the flip side, what, what would you have, you know, bet your bet the farm on in 2008 that will definitely have this by, by 2020 and it just hasn't materialized. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think the recognition that human genetics can play a really key role in prioritizing and discovering novel, you know, drug targets in disease, um, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily gone far faster than anticipated, but at least I, I really do think that's become um, that's become widely accepted. There have been, at this point, even studies that have kind of looked back at drug targets selected by biopharma companies and asked the question that, hey, if there was human genetic data, you know, at the time that a, a drug program was launched in support of that target as really playing a potentially causal role in human disease, does that drug have a higher chance of ultimately 
succeeding in clinical development? And the answer to that is yes. And so there's been this kind of real recognition that these are valuable data sets um, to guide our, you know, uh, discovery of therapeutics that are likely to really move the needle on disease. Um, so, so that part's been really great to see. That's happened not only via, you know, sort of some high profile partnerships like 23's and, you know, 23andMe partnering their data set up with, with the pharma company. And, um, you know, the same has happened with Decode. And, um, and now so many companies have created um, uh, access strategies to large biobank resources like the UK Biobank, like um, like FinGen, um, a collection of um, a really interesting set of genome data, you know, in a, in a population that had a had a historic bottleneck effect to to enrich for maybe higher effect size alleles and so on. And so there's this is happening now. There's more companies than I can count that are incorporating this data into into some part of their discovery strategy. So that's been great. On the other hand, where I think um, you know adoption has been a bit slower is probably in the clinical um, diagnostics realm. And and I think part of the reason, actually, is that we've been hung up on exactly that word, diagnostics. And we've been focused on kind of getting to a mainstream place of utility for human genetic information to play a role in definitively diagnosing disease versus maybe the much more prevalent and much more um, kind of near-term utility that might be available from using human genetics for risk stratification, for augmenting a physician's um, toolkit in understanding a patient's risk of disease and taking preventive care measures. And so in a lot of those bases, I think the field kind of got obsessed with understanding the heritability of common diseases to some extent and kind of I've been surprised at how long it's taken us to to find clinical proof points of how that exact same data, you know, now we're finally sort of talking about the idea of polygenic risk scores and how that might be used to guide um, preventive care for 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 the right subsets of patients. And um, that's that's kind of been shocking to me because in some sense it's the exact same analytics that we were obsessed with, you know, more than ten years ago, but in the context of chasing down the so-called heritability of a common disease. Yeah, that's such an interesting point. I, I feel like I'd like to go back and see, because it feels like all the pieces were there. There were very big genome-wide association studies early on in common mm-hmm. diseases. And if, if somebody had said, what if we just added up all the little effects and made a score? I, I imagine somebody did do that. Maybe it oh, just they did. Yes. didn't. It, was, it, was it just ignored or why, why didn't, why, why is think, it 10 years late? It's a good question. You know, I think, um, I was really lucky to be a part of a lot of the groups that have now pioneered, um, you know, really great publications and descriptions of the utility of polygenic risk scores um, clinically. Um, and, and I think it was just at that time, the academic community kind of had to fur was in a quest to prove any utility of common disease variation. And honestly, that was a, that was such a raging debate, this common disease, rare disease debate, common disease, you know, common variant, rare variant, um, hypotheses. And Mm. it's still a raging debate. debate. I agree. Um, but it was like people were, there was almost this 
this need to even justify pursuing more right. common variant profiling in the first place. And the most sort of fundamental question you could ask about utility at that time felt like it was heritability, which was to say, right. like, what fraction of the of a disease's causal, you know, genetic architecture is tied up in common variants versus rare variants. And if we could just like definitively answer that fundamental question, then we could decide whether we want to pursue more common, you know, variant profiling in more people versus more rare variant profiling, you know, in more selected patient populations or something like that. And that felt like the underpinning of a future research strategy to some extent. And I I think um, people just didn't, uh, it took a while to pose the very, clinically actionable question of, of like, hey, is there a subset of breast cancer patients who actually have a lifetime risk of breast cancer that's comparable to that of a BRCA allele? And framing the question that way suddenly made it so much more um, enticing, I think, that now right. finally people are starting to pay attention. Well, hey, like if I'm in that group, um, I'd love I'd to know that. Yeah. Maybe I would act on it. Maybe my doctor would act yeah. on it. And at least the information you know, currency feels, feels valuable. Do you think there's any major barriers uh, still stopping polygenic risk scoring and, and stratification from going through the healthcare system besides the healthcare system itself and how it's, uh, how it's structured to pay? Is that the, the major one or are there others that you see? I think there are lots. I think I alluded to one, which is kind of this subtle but important distinction between a clinical diagnostic and, you know, an informative tool. Um, holding polygenic risk scores to some kind of a binary diagnosis of yes or no, this patient is at high risk or not of having, say, diabetes or coronary artery disease doesn't really work um, because the scores aren't perfectly predictive. And, you know, then you can kind of get into an endless debate about what the right threshold is and, you know, whether you should reimburse for it and that kind of sort of a different context, but a much more useful framing, I think, is to recognize that doctors have been using imperfect risk stratification for decades. You know, the whole Framingham risk score is an imperfect way to pick out patients who might benefit from additional preventive measures to halt the progression of or delay the onset of a high-risk condition called coronary artery disease. And we're already, we're only okay at it in the status quo. And so yeah. if there were, you know, an additional piece of information that would go into a whole other set of risk factors, and now this has been really well described in publications um, out of St. Catherine's group and, and, and lots of other groups now suggesting that, yes, that information is additive on top of an already imperfect but still useful risk stratification tool that can guide the following actionable care management steps, you know, I think that's a much better framing. And so I think we still have to figure out how to roll that out. Should it be rolled out as a diagnostic? Should it be rolled out as a population health surveillance tool? Should it be, is there a need for health economic studies to um, to really justify the inclusion of this testing? People don't talk about it enough, but it's they're cheap, right? Like genotyping, whole genome, yeah. you know, whole genome wide genotyping is is dirt cheap at this point. You can do it for under a hundred bucks. So, to some extent, I think the the fixation on health economic proof is like is a little yeah. misguided because this is a one time test. It's cheaper right. than you know at this point a lot of standard lab tests. 
And yet I do think practically that is something that we're going to have to do. Absolutely. I, a couple episodes ago, I had Robert Green from Harvard on and we were hit the point that he made was one of the challenges from a reimbursement standpoint is how fragmented the, the healthcare system is in terms of who's actually paying for it. Because yeah. for, you know, for you, it may be coronary artery disease. For me, it may be something completely different, but you've got a single test that, um, is predicting, you know, hundreds to thousands of different diseases. So figuring out how the economic system can, the economic healthcare system can actually uh, wrap its brain around the fact that there's a single test that um, might for you deliver benefit in, in yeah. to the balance sheet of one part of the healthcare system. But for me, it's, yeah. it's someone else, but it seems like a solvable. Well, and that's even more challenging for a test where the cost is still high. So if you think about, you know, a high coverage whole genome, let's say, where exactly, as you said, it could be used to, um, it could be used to determine your carrier status in the context of, of you know, uh, of a young person planning a future pregnancy. It could be used to determine um, your polygenic risk score. It could also be used to determine your risk, pre- you know, predisposition for for rare, highly penetrant cancer predisposition alleles. It could just be used in so many ways that I agree. Then that question of kind of how do you parse the reimbursement for each of those applications becomes important. And the reimbursement matters because the cost of the test is still high. You know, a high coverage whole genome is still in excess of, you know, on the order of a thousand dollars anyway. This is really quite a bit cheaper. The concept of a mm. common variant based risk stratification tool. We're really talking in the sub, in the sub hundred dollars already today. You know, effectively the, the, you know, the cost our health system pays for routine blood work. Um, but this would be a one-time test. So it does, it does feel visit, different yeah. <laughs> on that basis. Yeah, for sure. But I agree. No, definitely. Well, I'd maybe love to transition a little bit from uh, polygenic scores, and we can definitely revisit this later into the future. But I, I want to talk a little bit about cancer. Yeah. Because um, you obviously spent a lot of time working on that at, at Flatiron. And from from my perspective, and, and feel free to um, correct me if, if you see it differently, cancer seems very far ahead uh, when we talk about personalized medicine. Um and and I'm I'm curious whether you agree with that, and if you do, what why is that, and what's needed for everything else to kind of catch up to the? I, I looked at a recent graph that there are now clinical trials with three or more um, genetic biomarkers in cancer. More than half of all clinical trials now have a genetic biomarker in cancer. What is it going to take to get to get there and um, and everything else? Yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right. Oncology is at the forefront of kind of incorporating a precision medicine approach in routine care. And that's because cancer is the most genetic disease to some extent. Rare genetic diseases are, of course, the sort of flagship example of not only diseases um, entirely attributable to, you know, to germline or, um, you know, genetic variation, but, um, you know, in that case, the the mechanism is is even more simple and straightforward. And so it clearly, you know, rare disease trials have had for a long time the requirement of a genetic, genetically confirmed diagnosis. Moving beyond rare diseases, when you look at diseases that affect large fractions of the population, you know, some cancer types afflicting on the order of 10% of the population over the course of, of a lifetime, um, it is one of the most genetic diseases where the drivers of the disease are somatic genetic change that happens in a cancer cell to make it cancerous in the first place. And so I think it's just that that core fact that we know it's the genetic transformation of a cell that led to the creation of 
you know, of the disease state that prompted people to, um, to focus so much on somatic tumor cell sequencing to understand drivers of the disease and then subsequently build drug pipelines targeting those exact causal mutations. And the simplest explanation for why that profiling has become mainstream is that we actually have drugs to guide an action that's based on this, on the testing, right? That started happening in the context of, um, you know, uh, maternity is kind of another example of where the NIPT test has become mainstream. Again, it's because that, that produces actionable information for, for a couple early in, in their pregnancy. I think a lot of people have argued appropriately so that even in oncology, our arsenal of targeted therapeutics is still not big enough to meaningfully change the course of a patient's cancer treatment in most cases. But even in the few cases where, um, where it absolutely does, that has, that has been meaningful enough to make most patients and most oncologists, especially in certain subtypes like non-small cell lung cancer, recognize that it's totally imperative to be doing the tumor profiling to guide um, the use of targeted therapies. So the other piece is that in other common diseases, let's say diabetes, part of the reason that the adoption of a clinical diagnostic to guide treatment has been slow is that what we did learn from this decade of fixation on genetic architecture and heritability is that truly maybe a larger fraction of that disease's underpinning is in common variants. And so that means if you take 100 diabetics, they're much more they're likely... They're all different. No, yeah. no, they're much more likely to share, actually, their underlying um, drivers of disease because they're common. We're talking about a whole bunch but, of. But they may be different. Uh, they may be different individual common variants, right? Yeah, but we're talking about maybe like you know thousands of variants, maybe millions of variants across the genome contributing to risk of diabetes, and many of them are at prevalence thirty percent, thirty five, fifty percent. You know, so as a result, in aggregate, the pathways contributing to diabetes across that those hundred people are much more shared much more so than, let's say, three different subtypes of cystic fibrosis, each of which are attributable to a totally... Completely different. Yep, I'm with yeah. you there. Yep. So, um, and so that's a good thing, right? That That's why metformin maybe works in everybody with diabetes. And that's why many of our oral hypoglycemic agents are actually effective in a large swath of the type 2 diabetes population. Um, so in some sense... Like the failure for of a of a type two diabetes and becoming a hyper personalized, you know, care field is is actually like a you know, it's a silver lining of the genetic architecture of the disease because it means that the drugs that we produce might actually help everybody with the disease. Um, but it also makes it harder to you know to feel like we're giving people the best drug for them. Maybe there's not one. Right. I. I, I it's very productive. So I guess that it's sort of implies that there's two broad groups. There's um, common diseases that are actually rare diseases masquerading as common. So, you know, if, you, if we look at Parkinson's or ALS, there's monogenic subtypes, um, and those probably will have their own precision therapies. And then there's common diseases that are truly just common combinations, and those may converge on a handful of pathways. And those might be much more challenging to, to develop precision medicines in the way that we think about them in the context of more monogenic diseases. 
Yeah. And I'd even say maybe they don't converge on a handful of pathways. Maybe there are a lot of pathways involved and that's what's making those diseases so complex. But those pathways, even if they are very numerous, may be largely shared across people with the disease, giving us the possibility to converge on a few therapies that work for everybody. That makes perfect sense. And I'm curious how this, you know, this insight that you've built over the last 10 to 12 years, um, you know, from a genomics and precision medicine perspective feeds into your, your investment thesis, or, or if you have one of those or, or view on the world, I'm wondering if you could just talk about how you evaluate new technologies, companies, therapeutics, and, and what you see at an early stage before, you know, before the, the proof is really there in almost all cases that uh, makes you take a bet that, um, that something could be the future. We could talk forever about what makes an early stage life sciences company exciting to us. But, um, you know, the core tenets are for us are actually, we think a lot about the team. You know, who are the people working on behind this idea and, and working to make it reality? And, and how much does, does kind of their enthusiasm and, and, um, expertise drive the likelihood of success for, um, for a novel technology. We look at how differentiated the core technologies are. Um, you know, in a biotech company, that could um, that could mean many things. It could be how differentiated is the assay that you've developed to uniquely profile patient samples, for example, and uncover novel, novel um, potential disease targets. It could be how um, how novel is the platform that you've built to optimize your design of novel antibodies. You know, it could it could be more on the modality side of things versus on the biology target finding side of things. But, you know, we do tend to, um, our approach at Andreessen Horowitz is to focus on um, a lot on how differentiated a technology platform is, even if that takes time to build. And it might take longer in some cases to build than a biotech company that's starting out the gate with um, with potential assets in mind. But we think that that sets the company up for kind of a very productive journey uh, in which that platform can can lay many eggs, so to speak, um, and and make the company able to prosecute a very large number of targets um, over the course of its lifetime. One of your investing focus points, I believe, is on uh, unique data sets. I'm, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that, whether it's genomic or, or other kinds of unique data sets that you're interested in? Yeah. So we look at data sets, I would say, in largely two categories, data sets that drive discovery and data sets that drive development, clinical development of novel therapeutics. And in both cases, um, I think we're just we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of how companies are going to creatively um, use data to accelerate and make more efficient both sides Um discovery and development. On the discovery side, that could totally mean what we just talked about. It could be a company that set up extraordinary access and know-how in mining large global population biobanks. It could be a company that's kind of crawling the UK biobank, um, you know, all day, every day, looking to understand novel human genetically um, derived drug targets and prioritize them and look for sources of validation for them and um, and be studying kind of careful sub-phenotypes within, you know, populations where that drug target may be playing a role and so on. And, and that could be a really differentiated um, data approach on the discovery side of the house. It could be a company that's building an extraordinary 
um, uh, experimental data set to nominate novel drug targets. One of the one of the companies in our portfolio called Incitro is building um, a very unique platform oriented around using induced pluripotent stem cells, iPSC cells, to create controlled environments where the genetic perturbation can really be studied to say, well, if we make this genetic perturbation, what happens to the phenotype of the cell and how does that subsequently interact with um, with the potential drug that, that could ameliorate the disease state? So there's lots of there's re- lots of really exciting approaches happening on the discovery side. Maybe even in between kind of target discovery and development, there's um, a lot of data sets that are now being brought to bear on drug candidate discovery and optimization. So um, you could imagine having a data set that describes high throughput small molecule screens or, you know, from, let's say, a DNA encoded library platform and really building a data set that allows you to learn which features of a small molecule correlate with which functional um, perturbations of those molecules, you know, or or binding properties of those molecules. And you could have a really... um, kind of unique data set that guides how you discover molecules. And then on the development side, lots of ways too, right? So, you know, going back to the polygenic risk score discussion, lots of different data sets could be really, could provide really interesting ways of stratifying the population that you're hoping to treat. And um, in so doing could enhance the effect size that you get to observe clinically of a candidate drug. So, you know, I hope we'll see more clinical trials that are leveraging um, things like polygenic risk scores to determine um, who might be the right candidate, let's say, for a preventive therapy or or even for a disease-modifying therapy. Absolutely. Those are those are all great examples. Maybe this is a good um, opportunity to transition into the, the next 10 years. Um, what, what are some of the areas that you're most excited about now and, and going forward, and in particular, any that... Um, or maybe off the beaten path uh, that that others aren't thinking about as much as uh, as you think they should be. I'm particularly interested in um, in exactly those that the framework that I use is is sort of what I just outlined on companies that can step change how they do discovery as well as development. I think we've had a little bit of a a period where we've sort of been skeptical of target discovery efforts. And some people have argued that, well, you know, we're in a target rich environment in some fields, maybe in oncology, where we know enough targets and it's been a problem of, of you know, drugging them and finding the right modalities to drug them. And I think we believe in that. And a large number of the, you know, bets in our portfolio are focused on novel modalities to drug maybe biologically de-risked targets. I do think, you know, kind of a set of, um, you know, maybe dark horse companies that are that are going to come up and, and surprise folks are going to have built really key capabilities around target discovery and are going to, you know, sort of go back to the biology drawing board and say, what are sets of targets that we just haven't done enough work to characterize and prioritize and um, and nominate as 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 novel, truly novel biology that we could intervene on? And so I'm, I'm a little, you know, maybe a little bit of a controversial position vis-a-vis folks, you know, honestly, who've looked at the trail of sort of target finding companies um, having really struggled to produce really novel targets. 
you know, my view is some of those are actually going to succeed and that we need to support their growth over the next decade. Sometimes it just needs time, right? It's not that it's a bad idea. It's just a little early. Yeah, exactly. That could be, you know, companies that are that are really investing in single cell sequencing approaches for target discovery. That could be companies that are investing in, um, you know, studying the function of previously unstudied cell types. That could be companies looking at classes of targets related to RNA function or epigenetic function and, you know, classes of, of, um, of proteins that we just haven't fully understood biologically. Yeah, absolutely. What is it, do you think, that's that's holding that back primarily? Is it, um, is it simply new, you know, new technologies like single cell need to mature and get lower cost and, and start to go along? Or is it the scale of data sets isn't quite there? What, what are the, the couple of things that, you know, levers that you feel like could need to change by an order of magnitude in order for, for that transition to really happen in a big way? I think the transition is, is already happening in the sense that I do see more and more efforts to expand the pool of novel drug targets. I think it just becomes a tough risk trade-off and, we have this conversation with companies that we work with focused on novel modalities all the time. Would you rather use your, your kind of your modality to tackle a target that has been universally agreed upon as a meaningful disease target? Or um, would you rather take on kind of double stacked risk to pursue both a novel target and bring your novel modality to it? So I think it's not all, it's not that that target um, hunting has been, unsuccessful. It's partially that we've also made so much rapid progress on novel modalities, right? We're able to design antibodies kind of in better ways and faster and more efficiently than ever before. We're able to pursue concepts like cell therapy. We're able to pursue concepts like target, you know, um, uh, target specific cell therapy in the context of, let's say, CAR T cells and so on. So in all those cases, the modalities have, have, um, have ramped up so quickly that that class of companies has has historic you know has over the last few years been a little bit more oriented around how can I point that at a target that's biologically de-risked and so I think we're now going to see a wave of companies that are going to say you know maybe I will take on some stacked risk and in some cases I'll pursue my a first couple of programs against de-risk targets but then maybe my next ones you know I'll pursue targets that are both novel and that both maybe and that may be also uniquely suited to my modality, where maybe another modality might not be able to exploit that biology the way I could. And that that'll still be a, a way to demonstrate the power of a new modality. How much of your your investing kind of on a percentage basis is in we've talked a lot actually about drug discovery and genetics targets, but I, I know you have um you know you, you're still practicing uh, doctor uh, at, at Stanford's and so you have a unique perspective actually on the day-to-day patient care, which is in many ways really far, um, you know, in terms of time and and universe from drug discovery, how much time do you spend on the very early and, you know, into clinical development versus innovations in the, in day-to-day patient care? Yeah, you're right. Sometimes the universes feel very far, but it's, for me, it's really a source of tremendous personal inspiration to meet patients, um, you know, every week who it's just very clear we don't have the right treatment paradigms for, um, you know, 
just every, I, I focus on cancer survivorship in my, in my clinical practice. And so I see patients with late effects from cancer therapies. I see patients with, you know, terrible graft versus host disease after the, after, you know, a bone marrow transplant. I see patients who have um, lots of contexts in which our cancer therapies either didn't work or really created a lot of side effects that I wish we could have avoided somehow. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's just always kind of humbling to remember that even though we're developing technology at what feels like such a fast pace sometimes, um, the patients in front of me haven't yet had the opportunity often to, to really access that or, or are still looking for more and deserve more. I will say some of my connectivity to care delivery does inform um, our thinking around ways in which development could be fundamentally changed. We just, our processes by which we, we educate patients about clinical trials, enroll them in clinical trials, follow them when they're on a clinical trial, learn about all their symptomatology while they're on the clinical trial are just, are just be, you know, behind. Um, we're not bringing, you know, 2021 level technology to that problem just yet. And um, I think at the same exact time as, as those technologies feel like, you know, they should come online, patients are also changing their attitudes towards, um, towards development. They really want to know about trials. They are eager to find out ways in which they could, you know, I hope everybody, I've had so many patients say, I hope everybody who could possibly benefit from it will learn from my experience and what I've tried and what worked for me and what didn't. And um, so there's just uh, that convergence of technology provider willingness to adopt technology and patient interest in being a part of research, I think is going to produce um, some real development advantages for our next generation therapeutics developers. Absolutely. One of the things you, you kind of mentioned there was the, or alluded to is the, the time period between you can see Star Trek level things going on in early discovery and gene editing and gene therapies. And it takes 15 years sometimes to get actually into, into the healthcare system at a large scale. And, and sometimes it never gets to a large scale because it's, it's so expensive. When you look at the whole system end to end, how, how do you think we get it down from, you know, 15 years to, to something more like two, three, four, one year months, say, if, if we look at, I mean, I, I, we haven't mentioned COVID all day, so, um, <laughs> but I'll mention it now that going from, uh, you know, viral sequence to vaccine yeah. in two days and through approval in a year, um, what, what, what do you think we need to do in the system as a whole to get everything down to a year like that? Yeah, yeah I, I do think, you know, Operation Warp Speed and some of the ways in which government and, and private sector came together to accelerate um, vaccine development, not just vaccine development, also antibody development and other therapeutic development and, and also diagnostic test rollout was extraordinary. And I hope there's no intellectual reason why that can't happen more broadly. Um, there are intellectual, you know, there are kind of real technical challenges, let's say, in translating an mRNA vaccine platform into um, a platform that can be used to treat other diseases, 100%. That's not, that's, you know, there are real research challenges left and technical challenges left to solve, um, to solve, to solve that barrier. But in principle, 
in a case where we have a strong therapeutic hypothesis, we have a modality that can be spun up to to treat it. You know, I think antibodies are maybe an even more compelling example, right? Where um, we know how to make antibodies, but still historically the development cycle has been longer than it was for COVID antibodies. There's no, there's no reason why we, um, there's no hard barrier for why that can't repeat itself in other parts of, of our biotech industry. And so I really hope that you know, that, that we do get to see repeat examples of it, whether for other infectious disease pathogens where we're seeing a whole flurry of activity now or um, for major um, disease therapies in other areas of unmet need. I, I think it will happen. Do you think it's, um, is it likely to be like the Roger Bannister four minute mile where no one can run a mile and then as soon as someone does, everyone breaks it the next day? Do you think we're going to get to, uh, rapidly faster timelines because people see it's possible and have a playbook basically. I think so. I think, I mean, I wouldn't underestimate some of the underlying platform technologies sort of just being ready for prime time at the, at the moment that COVID called right. for them and that platform development did take time. So going back to our discussion about, you know, kind of being willing to put in the time um, to build a novel technology platform before it's ready to lay eggs, that's still going to be important. Um, and I see a lot of platforms coming online, you know, in, in the gene editing space and gene therapy and cell therapy, you know, even new platforms um, in the antibody development world. We invested in a company called Big Hat Biosciences that's really bringing ML and protein sequence optimization to the antibody space. And so, you know, that's also a platform that will take some time to develop. But once the platforms are ready, yes, absolutely. I think there's going to be a little bit of that. I hope there's going to be a little bit of that. Sprinting. Yeah, yeah, sprinting to the end now that we've seen that it could happen, right? Um, maybe you need to get the right shoes and, you know, develop the cohort around you that's kind of cheering you on. Um, and maybe you need to collaborate with another um maybe you need to team up, right? Maybe it'll be a relay race. Um, yeah. And that's the best way to kind of collectively run the longest distance. But I think we've seen that happen. Companies have been collaborating a lot more than than we historically saw. That could be a company that, um, you know, is building a novel, uh, developing a novel antibody that finds a really great collaboration with a manufacturing group that's optimizing that part of the equation. It could be a company that's working yeah. with, a global CRO to really ex accelerate the rate at which um, patients can enroll in a, in a clinical trial that they're running. It could be a company that it could be a gene editing company that um, provides cargo, but um, collaborates with another company that's making the delivery vector. Um, and so these kinds of collaborations will help, I think, break some records, um, even if we break them by by being part of a relay race. I love that. Um, maybe that'll be the title. We'll see. <laughs> Um, one, one last question, because we're just running up against time here and, and uh, hopefully a quick one. We use the term personalized medicine all over the place. And I think everybody has a different personal vision or, or even definition for what that is. I'm curious what, what it looks like to you. What is, what is personalized medicine and how do we know when we get there? Yeah. So my view on this one, actually, I think, um, I think my PhD advisor, David Altshuler said this at one point when, um, sort of in frustration with, uh, with the field saying that the only way to get to precision medicine is like somehow to have everybody's therapy guided by their genome. 
you know, doctors, have, he used to say doctors have been doing personalized medicine for decades. Like it's crazy to think that, uh, to assert that, that doctors have not been providing care that's tailored to the patient they see in front of them, right? We've been diagnosing disease in individual people. We've been, you know, prescribing lifestyle modifications that are specific to the, to the patient that we see in front of us. And we've been working really hard to connect with people as individuals to influence their care. So in some sense, I do kind of share that view that we are already practicing precision medicine. And the sooner we can acknowledge that even our status quo has lots of components of imperfect, but still aspirationally precision care, that will actually make it easier for us to infuse genetic information and other more stereotypically precision medicine approaches into our standard of care, because it gives us a framework to understand that, hey, look, every time a patient walks in, I'm already calculating scores for their future breast cancer risk and their coronary artery disease risk and, you know, looking at their medical history and asking which risk factors they have for what conditions. I've already been doing that. And so now if I can supercharge that with some additional genetic information, I think it's more attractive to me to think about a world where we make already precision medicine, you know, more precise and even more impactful for patients um, as compared to this sort of step change view, um, which which is a little bit misguided, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, I really like that. And, and great way to end. Thank you. Um, if people want to follow you, I think you're, you're Vin Twitter on uh, Twitter, right? Which is an uh, amazing Twitter handle. Well done with that one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a, a lot of fun. I learned an incredible mountain. I, I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Genetics Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate if you left us a review on your favorite podcast player, or even better, you can tell a friend who you think might like it too. As always, you can reach us anytime at podcast at sonogenetics.com. We really love to hear from you all about any feedback you have, guests you'd like to hear from, or topics that you'd like to see us cover in the future. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time.